0: And tonight, whereas a couple of weeks ago we were talking mostly about kings, now we're transitioning, and tonight we're talking mostly about prophets, and specifically two in question, which would be Elijah and Elisha. Now, just as a review of the last time we were together, at least in this material, we we um, saw that parallel to the reign of Ahab, there was the reign of Jehoshaphat in the south. So Ahab, remember, just mental marker, Ahab was in the north, and northern kingdom, ten tribes, mostly corrupt to the core from beginning to end. There's very little reprieve of that at all in the northern kingdom. But Ahab was one of the kings in particular that's often the most famous because Elijah's ministry happens to coincide with Ahab And he was married to Jezebel, who also has some fame, I think, throughout the Bible as well. Her name's repeated several times, including in the book of Revelation for sexual sin and deviancy. And so uh, Ahab reigns in the north and Jehoshaphat reigns in the south. And Jehoshaphat, for the most part, remember, uh, his reign was somewhat uneventful and actually, uh, in some capacities, turned the hearts of people back to the Lord, yet... He did have many, many grievances, not many, but a few grievances that are, that are noteworthy in the text. And one of those is that in spite of all of his uh, righteousness and his righteous doings, I'm going to try to advance the slide here if I can. All right, we got it. Um, there is, if you see a little mouse come up and click the next slide, it's Robert helping me out back there in the back uh, when, my, when my clicker gives out. But, um, so he, he's leading the country in righteousness, but he has these, Bouts where he wants to wants Ahab to really like him. And so he makes these partnerships with Ahab, including going into Ramoth Gilead and trying to get Ramoth Gilead back, in spite of being warned by the prophet Micah not to do that. And Ahab is told specifically, you go in there and you're going to die. And Ahab goes in there anyway. And it was Jehoshaphat's idea to bring Micah in, in the first place. So to bring him in and, and actually, you know, uh, get another word from another prophet, maybe that might be not favorable, and in spite of Ahab's misgivings about doing that, Jehoshaphat insists they do, and Jehoshaphat still doesn't listen to him, and he goes and follows Ahab, and they go into battle, and at that moment, it seems, that's one of the catalysts, Jehoshaphat's mistake there, and being told by a prophet on the backside of that, hey, listen, that's, that's bad, and the Lord's going to judge you for it, that seems to inspire a little bit of Jehoshaphat's turn and repentance and leading to some you know religious renovations if you will in the southern kingdom and so he begins to appoint judges far and wide throughout the land and begins to take a little bit of of land back from Ahab in the north and and different things like that that are necessary for him and and so and and lead the country in righteousness but then in spite of all of that he also then has a marital alliance with Ahab where he gives away his daughter to be married and and um and so you know that there's that as well it seems that they were bent on trying to unite the two kingdoms when god had divided them um in the north then ahaziah ah did it flip it flipped all right in the north uh, ahaziah occupied the throne of ahab after ahab dies and ahaziah is um is steps through uh, some lattice work in an upper, upper floor, and well, he, he's dead. All right. <laughs> so, so his reign was like two years, it was nothing. And Ahaziah, the reason he's important is because the prophecy was that, that Ahab's line was going to be taken off the throne. Ahaziah sat there, he died early, and we thought, hey, this might be it. This might be it. But it turns out Ahaziah has a brother. And so the brother takes the throne, and that's where we sort of left off the kings. And so we're going to take a pause on the kings for just now because there is, a, there is another prophecy that we're really concerned about. And that is one that Elijah had received back when he traveled way down south to the mountain of Moses, right? Where he there received a word from the Lord that, uh, that Elijah was going to uh, appoint three people that were going to end up overturning Ahab's reign, as it were. And one of those was the prophet Elisha. So he was going to go appoint Elisha. And immediately after he leaves the out of Moses, he finds Elisha in a field. Remember, he's plowing with his dad's oxen. And he says, he puts his, he doesn't even say anything, at least in the text, he just puts his cloak on him. And Elisha immediately gets the message, realizes what he's got to do. So he kills all his dad's oxen and burns them alive. And then, uh, and, then, and then takes off and follows Elijah, just like that. So he is, uh, he is apprenticing under Elijah for some time. We're not really told how many years that is, but he's going along with Elijah. Well, the time has now come for Elijah to depart this earth, and he does not go the way normal people go, apparently. Uh, that is not good enough for Elijah. So he leaves in one of the most spectacular of fashions, uh, I reminded if y'all ever listened to Rich Mullins back in the day, he has the line, "When I leave, I want to go out like Elijah." You know, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know. That might be kind of terrifying. But anyway, Elijah is. Uh, it's time for him to leave, and uh, so God tells him that he's not going to die as most men die. He's going to be taken up bodily into heaven, and so Elisha. Is who is recently anointed is going to succeed him. And uh he Elisha was not was not gonna leave his side. He was he was not ha- he was not gonna be he was not gonna let Elijah depart alone. And so we're gonna see that in our passage in uh second Kings 2, 1 to 8. So let's read there. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way to Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know. Shut up or be quiet, keep quiet, I guess is probably how it's actually translated. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord is going to take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know. Shut up. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives, I bet you'll never guess what he says. As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them. And they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to one side and to the other the two of them could go over on dry ground. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Sounds a little familiar. That should ring some bells in your mind. What does it ring your... Ring the bell... What bells does it ring in your mind? Moses. Okay. Yeah, there's Moses parting the water. Anything else? Ah, there's another one. Remember, there's another parting of the waters. Shortly after that, the, the parting of the waters on the front end of the Pentateuch in Exodus... And there's a parting of the waters after the Pentateuch in Joshua when the children of Israel actually cross. And that parting of the waters of Joshua is kind of significant, right? I mean, what does it signify that Joshua was able to lead his people across the Jordan River when the waters part? What does that tell you as the reader? Well, it should tell you that like Moses, God is also with this guy, right? So just Pin that in your mind for just a second, because this all happens for a reason, I think. Uh, so he's taken up bodily, and now uh, he's going to leave. And you, you recognize that on, along the way, Elisha does not want to leave Elijah's side, but doesn't it kind of seem like Elijah wants to get rid of him? <laughs> it's, it's sort of like Elijah is sort of, you know, kind of pushing him away. All right, Now's the time where we part. You stay here, and I'm, the Lord's called me this way. It seems like, and, and who knows as far as all the details as to why that is, but it does seem like Elijah does not exactly know how this is going to take place. But he does know that the Lord has called him to the next city, and so he's going to go there. And it may seem like to Elijah that for Elisha to be, Elisha doesn't need to be there, that, that he won't be called on if Elisha is standing there next to him. Maybe, and so he's telling him to stay. Who knows all the reasons that that's uh, the case, but nevertheless it is. Or perhaps it could also be, as some people think, a, a test of Elisha's allegiance to Elijah. Remember, there's some question that, does Elisha really want to go? He, he wants to go back after he's called to be a prophet. He wants to go back and talk to his dad, to let his parents know, and you know, kind of do that in part. And there's some question, does that mean that Elisha has some misgivings about his calling as a prophet? Who knows? But um, whatever the case may be, um, Elisha is not having it. He is going along. And we're going to find out one reason why, at least one reason why, Elisha is dead set on being there with Elijah when he takes off. All right? I'm not going to leave you. And that is in 2 Kings uh, 9.14. Let's go ahead and read that, and we'll see. We'll get the answer to our blink in just a second. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, And Elijah went up in the whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces, and he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, this is important, listen to this. When he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other and Elisha went over. Okay, so he asks for a double portion and uh, he gets it. So there's these chariots of fire that come down and you have no idea how many people in Christianity want to take this story and just go, squeak right out of the Bible. It seems like every time we come to miraculous events, there's always people who want to scrub them out or explain them in some other way. So you'll get stories that sometimes sneak in the back door on you. Like, for instance, the parting of the waters in Moses' parts. Uh, some people will say, well, there was a volcano in the distance that had erupted and there was an earthquake that caused that volcano to erupt so that's the pillar of fire that they're seeing that they're being led by at night and the earthquake that had erupted caused a tsunami and the tsunami then parted the waters and all that. you'll see all this kind of rubbish and most of the places where it's going to hit you is going to be on like the history channel when you watch those little behind the scenes of the Passover, you know, the, the real untold story. And you, you get these sort of, I'm sure you're familiar with some of these as you've kind of scrolled across them on your, on your television set. Um, but all of these things, finding natural ways to explain supernatural phenomena, that's not what we're dealing with here. And a lot of people want to say, well, you know what, I don't know the Hebrew. I mean, what, what, what happens in the Hebrew here? I'll tell you what happens in the Hebrew. Elijah was taken up by chariots of fire and a whirlwind in Hebrew too, all right? Both English and Hebrew agree that that's how it happened. And so what does that mean? What does it mean he was taken up? Well, he was standing there at one moment, and then a whirlwind and chariots of fire came down and took him away. <laughs> there he goes. And so then what was happening after that? He was, he was gone. He was out there. Uh, there's a is this this is a question on one of the things uh, that somebody has asked which way was each Jordan crossing? Well, we're we're actually I'm actually going to show you a map in just a second, but I'll answer that briefly. Elijah and Elisha are leaving the promised land headed east. Elisha comes back into the promised land. Hmm, that's interesting, right? Okay, well we'll talk about this in just a second, but. Uh, Point being, on the, the the miraculous events, they're miracles, people. They're miracles. It's really simple. God separated the waters. This is not an event you can recreate, all right? You can stand near waters all day long, and unless God comes down and parts those waters, it ain't happening, all right? So there was no earthquake. There was no nothing. It was, that's the way it was. Now, in Joshua's day, there was some disturbances and things like that, but Neither here nor there. So what does Elisha ask for? As he sees, as he is walking with Elijah, he asked for a double portion. And Elijah gives him this contingency because it's not Elijah's to give. He says, well, you know, I'm sure Elijah's kind of interceding on behalf of Elisha to the Lord and saying, look, here's the deal. If you see the chariots of fire, God has obviously allowed you to have that double portion. And I'm assuming the soundtrack didn't follow that, the chariots of fire either. Uh, but anyway, you've received it, and if you don't see those, well, you haven't, okay? And so Elisha sees them, and he knows that he has received them, or he thinks he has received them, right? There's this question at the very end of this passage, and it actually gets us to the point of the whole thing, which is the question that Elisha asks as he strikes the water. Where is Elijah's God? And what happens? The water parts. And what does that tell you? He's right here. He's he's with Elijah. It tells Elisha, by the way, the same thing it tells you as you read it. And so, basically, this entire chapter is demonstrating the answer to that question. Because imagine for just a minute being Elisha. Here is Elijah, this... Amazing prophet of God. One that hasn't really been seen, I mean, since what Moses maybe Is this amazing prophet who stood on the Mount of Carmel and killed the prophets of Baal right there and struck the, the altar that was soaked with water and it, it lit on fire all at his prayer. God just answered those things. And how amazing was this man. And how, to be honest, probably feared was this man. He stood on a mountain just a couple of passages ago in 1 Kings chapter 1. 50 men come to him, and he's standing on the mountain. And because of their disrespect, he calls down fire from heaven, and they're all consumed. He does it twice. So here's this amazing man that you're following. You are his apprentice. And along the way, people are going, You know, he's about to be gone, right? And you can hear it in Elisha's voice. He's nervous. Who wouldn't be? He's human, right? He's a man, after all. Uh, he's, he's obviously nervous. Yes, I know. Be quiet. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I don't, I don't want to think about it, is how I, I understand that to be. And so uh he he's nervous. And so there is the question at the end of that. Okay, Elijah promised. Are you Lord, are you there? And it turns out the answer to Elisha is yes. Elijah's gone. But the Lord isn't. And so there is this scene, obviously, leading up to this where they're, they're walking, they're traveling through the land. And he, they come to Gilgal, and there, there's several places that uh, stand for Gilgal, which has a certain uh, interpretation in the Hebrew. But, um, but it has de- several different places. But the most famous is close to the Jordan, which is clearly where they are because there's several cities near the Jordan and um, it's just east of Jericho, and, and from there, Elijah travels 15 miles west to Bethel, and uh, then they come back to Jericho near the Jordan. So, here's the reason that that's important. Gilgal, yeah. Here are those, those those cities. Some of them you may not recognize. Some of them you may. Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho. What what stories are those important in? Do you, do you remember? Saul has some Gilgal stuff going on. There's one person in particular that has the first encounter. You remember? It's Joshua's story. They come into the land. So these cities are really important as for Israel's original revival uh, or arrival into the land. And so they come into the land and they go to all, they visit all these cities. But what's interesting about all of that is we've watched as the kings in the north have reversed course from the original arrival and the intention of the Israelites. They came into the land, and what was their agenda? Their agenda was to drive out all the Canaanites, all the worshipers of Baal. They were to drive them all out, right? What did they do? Well, they didn't really do that. They did some of it and they didn't do other parts of it, big parts. So what was the result? Well, there was this pagan idolatry that was still left in the land. There were still some worshipers of Baal. As time went on, you got to David who was faithful to the Lord, led, his, led the nation in faithfulness for the most part. But then there was Solomon and things started to go downhill. And then there were kings after kings after kings. Until we get to Ahab, what do they do? They don't progress in the way David had progressed in driving out the enemies. They don't even progress in the way Solomon had progressed in God giving him rest from all his enemies. In fact, once they had gotten the rest from all their enemies, they regressed to the point where they were back where Ahab was, married to a woman who was a worshiper of Baal and a Canaanite, and he brought her into his palace, and slowly the people, or very quickly, the people started to worship Baal again. So now the Israelites have become Canaanites. And so what does Elijah do with Elisha? But he walks back across the river the opposite way Joshua came in. All right, then obviously what happens when Elisha comes back in? He's coming in and he gets the double portion. This is the pathway, by the way. I've forgotten this slide was in here. This is the pathway that they took. So Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho and then back across the, uh, Gilgal's not a precise location there, but it'll give you a rough idea. But anyway, Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, and then back across the land. So that flag, if you can see it, Robert, you might help me with the pointer here, but that flag right there is, we'll, we'll say now, the approximate location of where that would have been, okay? Basically, all they're doing with the flag here is straight across the Jericho, and they're saying probably wasn't far across the, uh, across the, the river. Jordan. Um, And so around this area, he's lifted up. Sons of the prophets, probably back this way, across the the Jordan River, they're lifted up. And you're going to see that the the sons of the prophets are like, is he really gone? We'll see. Um, But uh, the point is, Elisha receives his request uh, like an eldest son would expect of his father, a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And Elisha then, as proof that he is able to or he has the the portion of Elijah's spirit the double portion he walks back across the Jordan River and so now just like Joshua entered into the land he's coming back through and he is on a conquest and what is his conquest similar to Joshua he's going to drive out the worshipers of Baal which are set up as the house of Ahab right the house of Ahab is the one who has taken on all these worshipers of Baal so Basically, Elijah and Elisha are reenacting the story of Israel coming back into the Promised Land, essentially. And um, and the, I I take it that's the what the author of First Kings wants you to see is that this is there's a this is the way Israel is going. But now look at what Elisha is doing, and his job is similar to Joshua to take on a new kind of conquest coming in, in a similar way to the way. Uh, Moses parted the water and then passed the, the reins off to, to Joshua, who also then parted the waters. So we've got similar kind of repeat here. So with that in mind, let's move to now Elisha's ministry because there's not just the parting of the water. There's essentially three things that happen right after this that confirm to not only Elisha but to all those around him that Elisha does have Elijah's spirit, or you might say a double portion of Elijah's spirit. So the first obviously is the parting of the waters and it tests the reality of what has actually happened. He parts the waters and it's confirmation to him that he has received uh, a double portion of Elijah's spirit. However, there's also three more tests that he undergoes following this. And so I wanna read this in 2 Kings 2, 15 to 25. Look at this. Now, when the sons of the prophets, remember they were following, those were the ones that were telling him, you know, Elijah is going to leave, don't you? Um, So when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho, so they're on the other side of the Jordan, they uh, are at Jericho, saw him opposite them. They said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. All right. So they've seen the parting of the waters now from Elisha and they're convinced. But are they? And they came to meet him and bowed to, to the ground before him. And they said to him, "Behold, now there are with your seventy, uh, with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley." And, and he said, "You shall not sin." But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, "Go, send. They sent, therefore, 50 men, 50 men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? Now, it's sort of like I told you so, I suppose. Now, the the men of the city of Elisha, uh, of the city said to Elisha, behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad. And the land is unfruitful. And he he said to them, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw some salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day. According to the word that Elisha spoke, he went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around when he saw them, he cursed the name of, (laughs) cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys from, amen, by the way. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel and uh, from there he returned to Samaria. So, Three very interesting stories that sort of wrap up this chapter, and we kind of need to take a look at at, at each one of them and just see a little bit about each one. Uh, So the sons of the prophets come over and they submit to Elisha, um, but they obviously observe that there's some strange things that went on with Elijah, and we need to figure out uh, what's going on here. And so perhaps it's true, Elisha, that you have a double portion of Elijah's spirit, but it could also be... You don't know. Maybe those chariots of fire just hauled Elijah off 15 miles from here. And we need to go search, and make sure he's not, you know, lost on some mountain somewhere. And Elisha tells them, no, don't go. And they insist that they must go. And so it's sort of like the uh the, the proverb. Remember the two proverbs back to back, answer a fool according to his folly. And then the proverb right after that says, Don't answer a fool according to his folly. And here, Elijah, Elisha answers the fool to according to his folly, don't go. And then they insist and he, he's like, you know, whatever. I'm not going to answer a fool according to his folly. If you want to not trust me, then go. But what does this actually do? Why, why is this story here other than to show us that not only does he have the power of Elijah, but he has the understanding and the wisdom of Elijah too, that he, he knows the heart of God. He knows what he saw and he understands what God was doing in taking Elijah from the earth. So we, we have to take from that, that that not only does it authenticate who Elisha is, but it also answers to the sons of the prophets that he has not only God's power, but he also has God's wisdom and, and, and his understanding. And so um, it tells us, too, that Elisha is an authentic prophet. And here we get two opposing scenes where it, it authenticates Elijah as a prophet because he can both bless and curse. You remember, uh, maybe Moses lays this out in Deuteronomy chapter 28, where he, he basically talks about the role of a prophet and how a prophet can bless and curse. And so it, it, it authenticates this, these next two stories, uh, authenticate Elisha as a prophet, not only because he has God's power and God's wisdom, but that he also blesses and he, and he curses in some cases. And certainly the, the cursing is, is a very strange story. But in the first story here, we get the water of Jericho being bad. Uh, It causes disease or causes a number of different kinds of uh, illnesses or or, uh, uh, bad health effects and things. And the people are upset. They can't grow crops and things like that. And so Elisha does miraculous work. We see this often in Jesus' ministry where he takes the mud from the ground and rubs it on the guy's eyes and and the guy is, is healed. Did the salt cure the water? Well, No. It wasn't the salt. It was the power of Elisha, the uh, power of God working through Elisha, working through the salt, working into the water. Uh, so um, so the, the water is healed. So he blesses the land of Jericho. Now, this is particularly important because remember in Joshua's ministry, as he comes across the Jordan River and he enters into the land of Jericho and they conquer Jericho, what does he say about Jericho? I look at Joshua 6.26. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gate. Now we know there is a connection here, obviously because the people are drinking water and there's uh, their miscarriage, right? That's obviously being healed. So then what, what also happens in first Kings 16? We covered this not that long ago, but that there was an attempt to rebuild the city of Jericho in his days. Hiel built of uh, Bethel, built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and he set up its gates. So essentially what happened when they tried to rebuild it, but that the prophecy came to be and he lost his firstborn. And so here are a bunch of people drinking the water and it's causing miscarriage because Joshua has laid a curse on this. And how is the curse reversed? Basically, a second Joshua comes through and on his conquest, he lifts the curse from, from the land and he blesses the land instead and curses. It sort of gives you kind of a... Uh, uh, what's the term a pre whatever glimpse i guess you would say at what elisha's ministry is, is gonna do is, is really moving in to overturn the house of ahab and and undo the, the false worship there and so then we get to this second story which as a follically challenged man is perhaps my favorite story in the in the whole <laughs> Old testament where uh Finally, you you know, get some those young whippersnappers calling you bald. And you sometimes wish you could call out some she bears. Uh, so in the second story, there's some people that some kids that jeer at him. And there's some question as to how young these kids actually are. There's more than 42 of them. We know that because the bears. Well, we, we suspect that based on the way it's worded, they tore 42 of them and didn't tear all of them is the implication of that. So there was apparently some that made it out to tell the tale. And, uh, and so the point is they jeer at him. And, and the question is, this word could be young, really young children, all the way up to punk teenagers, all right, out there, uh, that are jeering at him. Now, the importance of Bethel is that, of course, Jeroboam sets up, is it Jeroboam or Marimboam? I can't remember now that I said that. Yeah, Cherubom. Okay, good. He, as, he established Bethel, remember, as the southern place where worship of Baal would go on. So remember, it was Dan in the north, and then it was Bethel in the south. And in both of those places, he set up altars, and he set up kind of a little high place and a, and a golden calf, where they would basically worship Baal there in that area. So Bethel is notorious for pagan idol worship. And now by the time Elisha comes along, that idol worship has set into that community for a long, long time. So what do you think the attitude is around that city toward a prophet of God, just if you were to have a watch? If you find, typically, not, not always, but often, if you find a very... Uh, a terrible kid, let's say, who does not respect people that are in authority over them, typically you also find parents who have either not corrected that or, or encouraged it, maybe, right? Most of the time. So it, it tells you a little bit that these even these young children would come out against a prophet who has just parted waters, by the way, and would utter a some form of a disrespect to him. There's a lot of people who offer a lot of explanations as far as what that actually means. Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. I think it's actually not as complex as it may sound. Elisha was bald. Are you ready for this? (laughs) He's probably bald. All right. (laughs) Um, And, so that's one part of it. That explains the baldy piece. Now, what is the go up portion? Well, in that passage, if you look back in, uh, it looks like uh, verse 23, he, same word, went up from Bethel, from there to Bethel. And while he was going up, same word, on the way, some small boys jeered at him. So the go up portion is his path. Remember, he's coming from Jericho. So, which is down, if you remember the map, it's flat. The rest of the places are up hills. So he's going up to these cities. So for them to tell him, go up, is the same thing as basically telling him, keep on walking, right? (laughs) All right, bald man, keep on going, right? Keep on walking up the road. So basically what they're telling a prophet of God, you're not welcome in this city. Why is he not welcome in that city? Probably because that's a stronghold of cultic worship. And there is some suspicion. What are these 42, this gang of teenagers that are kind of roaming around? It's possible, not saying it's definite, but it's possible that this gang of teenagers are apprentices to the priest, the cultic priest that would be serving there. That would be not uncommon for a teenage boy to be sort of like uh, an assistant or an apprentice to the uh, to the, the priest there, so it's possible that these are not only just uh, teenage boys that are being punks, but are and very disrespectful, but are also perhaps on in the line of succession to be priests next. Ne- neither here nor there. I don't know that for sure, but it's possible that that's what's going on too. So, nevertheless. They are, they basically are insinuating that the prophet of God isn't welcome in that city. And I think that's the underlying current uh, underneath it. So he blesses the town of Jericho before him. And then what does he do to this one? He curses it. The two she bears come out of the, now these bears, okay, remind, be reminded, these are covenant keeping bears. All right. And (laughs) I know that sounds crazy that they would be covenant keeping bears, but uh, the book of Leviticus uh, tells us very plainly that these are covenant-keeping bears, and I'll show you that. Leviticus 26, 22. This is God saying this through Moses. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. And what is that for? That's for idol worship. That's for elite forsaking the Lord. So these are covenant bears that are coming out and being covenant bearers, no pun intended, actually tons of pun intended, (laughs) covenant bearers uh, coming into the land and actually striking dead those who would uh, offend the prophet of God. All right. So, yes, Timothy Carden. Here, wait, 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 hold on. Ask your question with the microphone. There we go. Well, this probably wasn't the first time they ever did this. That's probably true, yeah. And Solomon says in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, as men are not released in a time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. There you go. So you can put it on the pew in front of you. Just put it right there. That way I don't have to lean and you don't have to lean. Uh, Yeah, so, you know, yeah, you don't, usually you don't start with the prophet of God. You start, you start small. You start insulting your parents or, you know, somebody like that. And then and then it comes to the, the uh, prophet of the Lord. So in these two vignettes, and, I, and here's the reason why I think these are all important, not, not just in these two vignettes, but also in the whole story. You get in the one vignette, you get grace brought to Jericho. And in the second, you get judgment um, that demonstrate that God is at work amongst his people through the prophet Elisha. And this is really important. Why? Because of the question at the beginning of the chapter that Elisha himself asks: where is the God of Elijah? And as it turns out, he is right here amongst his people. He is continuing, believe it or not, even in this judgment, calling them back to repentance. They're finding at every turn that the Lord is coming back to the promises he made in the Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus, in Joshua, obviously outside the Pentateuch, but in Joshua, in Joshua handing off the baton to Moses, in the curses that are on Jericho that Elisha lives. In all of these, he's reiterating to his people, I'm still the same one, but there is question. Every time a powerful person, every time a man of God in the Old Testament leaves, There is a question that has to be left to the reader who's reading it. Well, what happens now? That was the case with David. That was the case with even Saul, who wasn't necessarily a man of God. But it was the case with Samuel, who left. What happens now? What is God going to do? There's always the question, is God faithful to his promises? And the reason why, if you'll read the Old Testament with that question in mind, is God faithful to his promises? Is he faithful to his promises? What you will find is that the Old Testament authors, time and again, are raising that question in your mind. Is he faithful? And the answer they will always get to is yes. They ask it a thousand times if they ask it once. and Or, they, or imply it, I mean. not It's not going to be stated outright. It's implied in the story. What happens now? Is he faithful to his promise? What happens to his people now that Elijah's gone? Is he faithful to his promise? It's on Elijah's talk. This is one of the few times we actually get somebody actually just voicing it out loud. Where is the God of Elijah? And yet again, he answers right there. The reason I think that they ask that so often is because that is the number one question you and I are always asking. Aren't we day to day, every single day of our lives, there arises some sort of thing where we have to ask, where is the God of Elijah? And time after time, the Old Testament reiterates, is there. Now, sometimes that answer doesn't come until the end of someone's life. Or it doesn't come until, you know, many chapters later, that's 30, 40 years later. But the answer always comes. Because I think it's really the biggest question people are asking, where is God in general? The Old Testament is reminding you over and over he is right there. So Elijah is gone from the scene. Yahweh remains here with his people. Questions? Go ahead, Timothy. Isaiah, he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But to realize that people's attitude is so strong against the word of God, and he can't do anything to, to stop that. He can't change it. And that's, that, to me, that Jesus wept when yeah. he saw that. Yeah. But he still pronounced judgment. Yeah. Or the passage we saw last Sunday, which was, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered you? The hen gathers her chicks. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, I think, always when we read judgment in the scriptures you don't read it with vindictiveness and you know uh and good they got it they got what was coming to them we and and i'll be honest with you there's sometimes where i read the text of scripture and jesus attacks pharisees or you know the list goes on of the number of times a righteous man opposes wicked people and your my thought is is really not one of compassion it's like good they got what was coming to them you know, but we really have to fight against that and think, well, that was coming to me too, right? And but God took that out on Christ, and 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 so you know, it, it's it's one of those that should kind of give us a little pause before we take get on our, our righteous high horse, you know, and sort of a, attack, um, you know. And I, I forgot to say this, but but you know, uh, Jesus leaves. And the the apostles are in the same situation as as Elisha, where they're standing here like looking up at the heavens, and it's a hilarious little episode in Acts where they're just left standing there to the point where an angel has to come down and say, "What are you looking at? <laughs> what are you What are you waiting for? Let's Let's get going." You know. So how long were they standing there? I have no idea. You know. <laughs> but they're left with the same question. You know, where Where is God praying for his arrival? And and obviously, 50 days later in Pentecost he comes, or some days later he comes. Other questions to the thousands in attendance, of the millions watching around the world. What? Yeah, attitude of the kids toward the Word of God is. Bad. anybody else? Well, okay, all right. Sufficient. What's it? Yeah, he, Jeff Jeff Bell said he never saw expected to see the word baldy in the Bible. Uh it's great, right? Uh I I love that. It's a you know. And you know, I think just just know that anybody that teases me for being follically challenged, I, I'm I'm praying for some she bears. Uh, you know. <laughs> I'm teasing. Ish. Um all right, let's let's pray and we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time to to open your word and to just uh look at it intently and and examine it from all sides and um, and just get a lay of the land of the Old Testament and understand the story that spe- that's taking place there. And as we continue to be reminded of the question that is always before us, where is God? Uh, I, I pray that as often as possible, we can see in the text of Scripture you, the answer time and again that you are faithful to your promises. And so, Father, I I, I just pray that that would, for us, give us the comfort of knowing that sometimes the answers don't come in our timetable, whatever that may be, but we can trust because the overwhelming amount of evidence that you are faithful and that you will continue to be faithful. Because it is your name that's at stake. And if there's nothing else that we learn from Scripture, it's that your name is um, unmistakable. Your name is, um, is powerful. And that you would never do anything to forsake the promises that you have made because of your name. And so we can trust that. And we know that. And I pray even for those that are listening that may be going through things that they're too afraid to voice even, that you would continue to reiterate to them that their concerns are important even to you. And that their cares and their worries, their frustrations, their fears are all your concerns as well because you love them and you care for them. And so I pray that you would reiterate to them, even through this, that you are always faithful to your promises, and that everything, whether it be a a peak or a valley, is for our good and for your glory, and that we can trust that because you are good. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.